Hey, hey, welcome to episode number 86 of the Brave Widow Show. Today, I talk with a special guest, Erin Zamora. Erin is a 28-year-old widow who lost her husband and person of four years to a terrible form of cancer. He was age 29. He was healthy. Everything was was great. And unfortunately, at the incredibly young age of, of 29, he passed. And her story is one full of many ups and downs of really what was an emotional roller coaster. And this story was especially difficult for me at parts. Uh, I worked in healthcare, as many of you may know, for 20 years, and I wasn't a nurse and I mostly was not on the clinical side, but I have a great appreciation and respect for what it takes to effectively work in healthcare. I can't imagine what it takes to practice medicine, but I know that is no easy task. And while I have the most respect and appreciation and care for people that work in healthcare, I also recognize that sometimes the patient coordination experience or the patient communication experience isn't always the best. And her story takes place over really a couple of months of being transferred to four different hospitals, of struggling with many ups and downs of communication that went sideways and just some of her struggles. And so while many of us have lost our spouses while they were in the hospital or while they were in the healthcare continuum at some point, it is very much a reality, some of the emotional struggles that widows and family members experience when communication doesn't happen, maybe the information isn't there, maybe the transfers don't happen as smoothly as they can, and maybe sometimes healthcare just doesn't go according to plan and you have very limited options. All right, so let's dive into Aaron's story. Welcome to the Brave Widow Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Jones. We help young widows heal their heart, find hope, and dream again for the future. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of the Brave Widow Show. Today, I'm excited to share with you a special guest, Erin Zamora. Erin, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show today, and I'm excited to uh, share your story with our audience. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I know everyone would love to hear a little bit about you, about your background, and then we can really just dive into your story wherever you like. Okay. Yeah, I am 28, and I am a production planner, which is lots of fun, definitely chaotic. But so are you like the organized person that keeps everybody on track, basically? Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been, it's been a lot of fun lately. It's end of the quarter. So, but yeah, my husband, uh, his name was Dan. He was 29. We met in 2019. A mutual friend of ours. I had just moved back from California to Texas and an old friend of mine asked if I wanted to go swimming at this like green belts in Austin. And so I had, I was kind of hesitant at first, but then I ended up going and she had a 
and invited another friend. And I had gotten there. She's like, oh, hey, do you care if I invite another friend? And I was like, oh, no, it's fine. Whatever. Then I was thinking, you know, someone that she was interested in or something. And then he showed up with his dog, Lily. And we all went to the green belts. And he was very shy and quiet. And we spent that whole day together. We we swam and talked. And I had a a softball game that day and so they both came with me to the softball game after we got done swimming and it was tons of fun and he ended up like talking with my stepmom like my whole softball game just asking her questions about me and she thought it was weird but you know (laughs) it was actually really sweet and then we stayed up talking that whole night till about six in the morning just talking getting to know each other and ever since then we have just been by each other's side. <laughs> oh, I love that. So was he like that really the rest of your relationship? Was he a good listener and, and curious about you? He definitely was. He was hands down the sweetest, like most affectionate person I've ever met in my life. And he just always put me first and was always making sure I was okay or worrying about me. And he was just the best person. (laughs) I love that. I think people like that really help us feel seen and understood and, and important. And that's just such a beautiful gift that, you know, sometimes we find in our person, which is amazing. So what, uh, what else did you like about him? What made you start to think like, yeah, okay, maybe he's the one that, you know, I really want to spend my time with and that I want to be with. Well, he, we had so much in common just right off of the bat. And, um, I could not understand, like he was, he was very, very shy and very closed off and just, he was very inquisitive. He always was asking questions about, oh, well, why'd you do that? Or, well, what caused you to want to do that? And are you, would you want to do it again? <laughs> I was just like, actually asking questions, like trying to get to know me and the way my brain works. And I was kind of like. I'm not used to that. (laughs) And he was just very soft-spoken. And I had just gotten out of like, probably a few months prior, I had just gotten out of like a really bad relationship that I was in for seven years. And he just would allow me to talk about whatever I needed to. And I couldn't imagine spending any day without him. Wow. I love that. Yeah, it's amazing at times when we find those rare people that just really want to understand us on a totally different level than most people. I mean, most people, sometimes it's hard even just to have a conversation and they're not deflecting it or talking about something else. So yeah, that's really, really an awesome experience. Yeah. So you met in 2019 and uh, it sounds like you guys were just two little peas in a pod after that and just, you know, kind of um, started hanging out together and building your relationship. Uh, what were the next few years like? So for the first couple of years, we were living with my mother, trying to save up money for a um, down payment on a house. And so that was kind of... We, we spent those couple of years, you know, buying furniture and all of the house necessities that we would need for the house because we didn't want to buy the house. And then, you know, money's so tight, you can't afford to buy anything. 
so we had spent the first couple of years just saving up and buying things for the house and um, going to family gatherings and parks with his son. And he has a 10-year-old son and he's there. He was such a great dad to him. It was perfect. Um, and then I think it was it was January of last year. We finally had enough money for to put in an offer on a house. So we started looking and we had thrown a couple offers out for a couple different properties and you know, we kept getting outbid and, and it was very defeating. You know, we were sad. And then we found one and then we came to see it and we walked inside and there was a stocking, a Christmas stocking hanging on the fire mantle and it had my name on it. And it was just like, and then there was another one that had the name Lily on it, which was his dog's name. What? And it was just a crazy coincidence, you know? So <laughs> um, after touring the house, we were like, I think this might be the one. And so we put in an offer and we got outbid, but the owners didn't want to rely on, you know, the highest offer. So they accepted the second highest offer because they didn't think that we would, you know, they thought we would follow through. So we moved into our home January last year, our first house, and started decorating and painting and house projects and getting prepared for you know we we wanted to get a room set up for his son and a potential baby and you know all the fun things that come with you know buying a house yeah and um sounds like you guys were able to get through at least a few projects and really make it feel like this is going to be our place and you know, sometimes doing projects like that together can be really aggravating. My boyfriend and I were have just been like sanding and refinishing some big bookcase, like entertainment center uh, things in this house that we uh, have rehabbed. And I could see where that could definitely go sideways, but <laughs> fortunately for us, it didn't. So uh, hopefully it went well for you guys too. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was definitely those moments where, you know, you're so frustrated because it's just not working out the way that you envisioned it. And you're just like sitting there for hours. Just like, well, why don't we try it this way? Well, why don't we try it this way? And then you're just like, I'm going to bed. I'm tired of dealing with this. So were you able to get some of those major projects completed or is it something that uh, ended up, you know, just one of those things you were just always working on it? I mean, we got most of the painting done there's like a couple rooms that aren't fully painted and our, our front garden used to be all gravel and so we removed all of the the gravel and rocks from there and actually planted a garden plants that we planted did not survive but <laughs> i recently just redid it and i planted a couple of trees and a bunch of plants so i'm like hoping that this time around it stays yeah, and that's a chore moving all those rocks. Like you think it's not going to be a big deal, but it's a big deal. So <laughs> good it's insanely you. heavy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, you moved into this house together. You're building this life. You're making updates to the house. You're you know getting a garden going, and you know what happens. Um, how did you end up losing your person? So June 27th of this year, um, he got diagnosed. He got the diagnosis. Okay, well, back up a little bit. Um, so back in 
like April, I want to say, we had removed these large, large bushes from our front garden. And it was a lot of work. And I thought that he had strained his back. And his back started bothering him quite a bit. And we thought that, you know, maybe he pulled a muscle or something. And it was just kind of, it had been aching for a few weeks after that. And um, he was having abdominal pain as well. And so, you know, we went to the hospital the first time in May. And they had basically chalked it up to that he was backed up because he wasn't having regular bowel movements. And uh, so they gave him some Miralax and um, something for nausea. And then they sent us home. And uh, so he was seeing a chiropractor at that time, thinking that that might help him with his back pain. And um, so he had gone to like a couple adjustments and it had oddly helped a little bit. And then, but the pain just kept coming back. Um, and he was losing weight. He wasn't eating. His back was hurting all the time. He started just sleeping all day. And um, like he was eating, all he would eat would be like a popsicle or a pickle. Like I, I couldn't remember the last time he had eaten an actual meal. Um, and so we took him to one hospital on the, what was it? The 26th? Yeah, on the 26th. We took him, oh, no, okay, sorry. The 25th, we took him to one hospital to get an MRI or request an MRI. That's what his chiropractor had suggested we do. And so we took him to the hospital and they were like, oh, well, we can't just do MRIs. You have to make a doctor's appointment. So the next day on the 26th, we make a doctor's appointment and she instantly thinks that he has kidney stones. She takes a urine sample and found blood in his urine and wanted to get a CT scan scheduled, but they've never called to schedule it. Why? I don't know. So later that night, his back pain had gotten much, much worse. And so um, I ate some dinner and then I took him to a different hospital. And um, finally, they, after sitting in the waiting room for four hours, they pull us back and the first thing that they want to do is, uh, you know, labs and a CT scan. And they did the CT scan and uh, it wasn't kidney stones. <laughs> and he came back and said, I have some really, really bad news for y'all. And we're like, oh, no, kidney stones. And he's like, no, stage four cancer. And mm -hmm. we were just like both of our hearts just like stopped because it was just like excuse me my 29 year old healthy husband has stage four cancer so he had um tumors in his liver spine and colon wow i i can't even imagine you know that time that you are watching him not eat watching him lose weight, watching him just really suffer in pain. And then to have it build up in your mind, well, maybe it's this or that. And then hearing that from, you know, the doctor and, and from the healthcare team, it's just the amount of shock and um, denial had to just be overwhelming, you know, in those moments. It definitely was like, you know, none of us were expecting that diagnosis. 
you know, kidney stones made sense. You know, they pop up in your late twenties and it's pretty common and it would make sense with everything he was experiencing. And so we were definitely not expecting stage four. <laughs> yeah. And especially, you know, being that young and it's just very mind blowing. So uh, did they end up referring you like to a specialist and, um, you know, trying to, to get some follow-up treatment or, or give you a timeline or what did that look like? So after we got the diagnosis, we got put on a transfer list. Um, they were trying to get us to uh, Baylor Scott and White in Temple which, um, it, you know, it's a great cancer center. Um, it's not like MD Anderson or anything like that. Um, but as far as locally, you know, it's one of the better hospitals to go to. And they, it had been two days and we went from being in 11th position to being in ninth position, waiting for a, a bed in that hospital. Um, and so finally they are like, well, um, there is a bed at this Seton hospital um, and we can get you transferred there today. And we all really wanted to get him into, you know, Baylor Scott and White because it was a better hospital and they had like a cancer wing and great uh, oncologists and all of that. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty in these situations. And um, we decided to go ahead and take the available bed um, at this other hospital because, you know, we wanted to get him seen when they take like a sample, uh, a biopsy. So we, we really wanted to get the biopsy done because first hospital couldn't do biopsies. So we needed to, you know, figure out what it was and how bad and everything. So we got to the second hospital and they wanted to do the biopsy, but they also wanted to um, input a um, colostomy bag because he was backed up. He was not having bowel movements. So he quickly after we got transferred in, they made a game plan. And like the next day, uh, he went into surgery for the colostomy bag and to get the biopsy. When they were in there, they said that the um, tumor in his colon was so big, they could hardly get through to get the biopsy. And I was like, okay, um, don't know what that means, but all right. So they did that. Everything was fine. So we thought... And then the, uh, that night, you know, he was doing better. He was feeling better. He wasn't in as much pain and he just plummeted really fast. Um, he, he started turning pale. His lips were white and he was just kind of like very out of it. And I'm sitting there talking to the nurse and I'm just like, what, what's going on? Like, this isn't normal. And she's just like, well, it, it's just gas. It's just gas. And I was like, excuse me gas he is a ghost right now and then like um a few hours later the surgical nurse practitioner came in and she's like why weren't we called he's bleeding internally so they had spent a few hours just doing transfusions pumping him full of blood and platelet and it wasn't holding so they rushed him into emergency surgery um to stop the internal bleeding and they were able to, but I think that was kind of the, where thing went downhill. He had had internal bleeding throughout the rest of his short period at the hospital. So 
he they stopped the internal bleeding he started doing physical therapy and he was up and walking um and then they wanted to get us transferred to another hospital so he could start chemo basically um and at that time they had basically just said that he had uh colon cancer and so um it was very aggressive very fast growing um and they said you know if we can if chemo and radiation work, you know, you could have up to, you know, two to 10 years. And so we were like, okay, that's good odds, right? So we get transferred to the third hospital. And um, the oncologist there really didn't understand why we were transferred there. Um, because his hemoglobin levels and his platelet levels were so low because of internal bleeding that he wasn't really a good candidate and stable for chemo. So you've got all this, um, which I know because my my husband was in the hospital for uh, almost a couple of weeks. And uh, it's a very strange feeling when you want to be able to trust that they're in the safest place and everyone knows what they're doing, which practicing medicine is very tricky. I can't begin to imagine what it takes to do that. Um but I know it also can create a lot of confusion and a lot of ups and downs. And it's just this big emotional roller coaster that you had to have been going through in what sounds like a really short amount of time. It definitely was. It was a roller coaster. You know, I think between the four hospitals that we were at, it was, we had seen well over 20 doctors. And, you know, he, the oncologist at the, uh, the third hospital, he was, he was informative and I think he was a lot more realistic about where we were at. And he was like, look, if you are 29 years old, this, this chemo, if you really want to do it, we can take the, we can take the risk. But he was like, I'm going to be upfront. You know, this chemo could kill you with your internal bleeding. It could make you bleed out. And it was, uh, that was definitely rough to hear, but you know, it was, I mean, it looks like, you know, he's going to die either way. So, you know, do you want to try or just try and go hospice and enjoy what remaining time you have? And so basically they had, we, we, he decided he wanted to try the chemo. And um, so we just needed to get his platelets up to 20. And then if we could get his platelets up to 20, he could start the chemo. And uh, we just never got there. <laughs> and uh, his general doctor at that time was bumping heads with his father. And they were having, you know, lots of issues. And so basically they were just like, well, we, we're sitting in hospice. We're not going to do anything else. And he had, his father had been trying to get in touch with like MD Anderson to like see about getting him moved over there. And this doctor, it had appeared that he was just blocking every move to get a second opinion, wasn't responding to other doctors, phone calls, emails, requests for records, scans, any of that. And so he finally cycled out for his um, days off. We got a new doctor that day and she got us transferred that same day. And so we're at hospital number four, Baylor Scott White and Temple finally got there. And they were looking at his labs and everything, and they weren't quite convinced that it was colon cancer. So they they wanted to do their own biopsies, 
But more than anything, they just wanted to uh, get him on an abridged chemo. So just like it, it was basically reduced chemotherapy is what they called it. And they, you know, the internal bleeding had subsided. How we don't know. It just resolved itself. Um, and so we were on track to do the abridged chemo and see if we could just uh, attack it because the cancer was growing so fast. It had moved into his bone marrow. And this is all in like a month. And unfortunately, the day that we were supposed to start the abridged chemo, they ran his labs and his hemoglobin levels, you know, they dropped from nine to five, indicating a large internal bleed, which they did a CT scan and that confirmed it. And they were like, we're so sorry, 24, 48 hours. And then three days later, he passed away on July 30th. Wow. What just... What a journey. What an emotional roller coaster of a journey of, oh, we think things are getting better. Oh, there's hope. Oh, now we've taken a turn for the worse. Oh, it's looking good. Oh, no. And that must have just created a ton of uncertainty and trepidation and really doesn't give you much time to figure out, you know, should you prepare for a few months from now, a few years from now, a few days, or do you just hope for the best that everything's going to work out? I can't even imagine that you could think clearly during that time that had to be extremely stressful. It definitely was. You know, we were in the hospital for a month. Um, aside from a couple of nights, I did not, I was there with him the whole time. Um, you know, I was not sleeping much, not really eating, not taking any mini breaks. Cause I was just like, I need to be by his side. And, you know, his family was there. My family was there, you know, everyone was there trying to help us. And then, you know, I remember one of the first times when, you know, we got good news and I was just like, Oh my gosh, yay. We're going to be okay. And then it was literally just like over and over and over of like good news bad news good news bad news and it was just so mentally exhausting on top of being physically exhausted you know when you're sleeping what little sleep you do get you know you're in a hospital chair and it's not super comfortable and he would wake up randomly you know in pain or needing something he started sweating having a sweating issue two weeks in and he would just be he would wake up drenched in sweat and he couldn't get up any at that point anymore. And so his father and I, you know, took turns, you know, wiping him off with a cloth, getting all the sweat off of him, getting a new gown on him, replacing the sheets and the pillowcases and the blankets. Cause he was just sweating through them. They were drenched and it, it just, it was very, very taxing mentally and physically. So what would you say to someone who's maybe listening because they're expecting to lose their spouse, but they're in the middle of that storm, like they're in the middle of the ups and downs and being the caretaker and being exhausted and not knowing what to do? What advice would you give to someone in that situation or or what words of encouragement would you give them? I would recommend I know it's not an option for everybody but you know if you can have you know another person where you trade shifts at a hospital 
That way everyone is getting sleep. I know it's very hard to get sleep. You know, no one's getting any rest, but you know, if you can close your eyes for you know a few hours at least, just have someone there that you know you can trust and will take shifts with you. And take the good days. You really got to appreciate the good days. Even if you know what's coming, those good days really make a difference. Because when you're at a hospital for, you know, weeks on end and it's all doom and gloom and sad all the time, you just, not only does it, is it harder on them, but it's going to be harder on you as well. So you got to try and find the little things, the little moments and really appreciate those. Well, you can. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. And it has to wear you down over time. I know even, I think Nathan was in ICU 11 days. And even that just, that doesn't compare. But that was just emotionally exhausting, as you said. Just this constant, oh, we think things are better. Oh, now we're worse. Like, how, how is this possible this happening? How is it possible that different people are telling me these wildly different stories about what's going on and what's happening and what will happen. And um, so I know, especially when someone's in the hospital for extended amount of time, that really can wear you down. And so, like you said, getting rest and having people who will step in and help and accepting the help. A lot of people struggle with that too, I think is really important. Definitely. Um, Accepting the help, having a support system. I appreciate like the little things like, we had one really great day at the hospital and we weren't sure if we were going to be getting out of there. So he finally was like, Hey, um, you want to get married? And I was like, definitely. So we had like a little ceremony in the, in the courtyard with the minister. And, you know, it was just, it made everything better for him. Like he was just glowing. He was so happy. You know, we weren't sure where we were going to end up how things were going to end up. But that day, you know, we were playing Jenga and he was laughing and, you know, just having fun, smiling with me and with our friends and family. And it was just like, I'm glad we did that. Cause it, it's sad. It made so, it better. Yeah. And those memories, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of all the stuff we have in our lives, those memories are everything. Uh, so I love that that you guys did that and were able to try to enjoy some of those good times along the way for sure. Oh, I definitely am too. <laughs> it was the best day that uh, the best day of my life. <laughs> definitely. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show and just being so open about your story and you know, what, what the two of you went through. Um, do you have any final words of encouragement or advice that you would want to leave people with? I probably would just say when the first few weeks of this are always really hard, but those aren't the worst days. You know, there's going to be a lot more days like that in the future. Um, so just focus on what you need to do to get through them and, anything else is irrelevant. You know, if you and your kids or anything else is taken care of, like just focus on getting through from this hour to the next hour, this day to the next day. Eventually we find a new level of living again. You do. And it'll continue to improve as you move forward. And I know, especially for people that are listening that are still really early on, and maybe even for you too, 
it's hard to imagine at times being able to laugh again or to find joy or like, what is the point, you know, of trying to create a continued future for yourself, but it is possible to embrace joy again. And, um, that's part of why we want to do this show to, to help give others encouragement when they just feel like, you know, everything is hopeless. So thank you again for coming on and uh, being willing to share your story. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I think it's very, it's amazing how many um, resources are I've, I've come across out there for new widows, young widows, older widows. It's, it's, uh, it makes me very happy to, to know that we're not in this alone. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a, a uh, game changer for me was uh, not feeling like I was so different from everyone else being that young widow. Yeah. I mean, you know, most people, when you think of the term widow, um, you know, you're thinking elderly, like your grandparents, you know, they just, it just happens and with their time and they just pass away. You never think that like, man, I'm 28 years old and I am a widow. Oh no, I don't like that. I do not like that at all. Yeah, I I hated that. And I can still remember riding the lawnmower to get about how much I hated that and how much I was like, no, widows are old and weak and sad. And <laughs> that is not <laughs> me. But we learn more about how resilient and generous and caring and understanding widows are. And now I'm proud to be amongst that group of people because they're in, an incredible community of people for sure. No, I definitely agree. I, I know I would be lost without the multiple podcasts and widow groups that I have found on Facebook and Reddit. Yeah, definitely. Hey guys, before you go, I would love to help this show grow, to help get out these stories, to inspire and encourage other widows that are out there. And you can make the biggest difference. You can, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe, comment, or share this video. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, wherever you may be listening, go and leave a review. Leave a one-star review. Leave a five-star review. However you feel about this show, just go out and leave a review. And it helps us get the show out in front of more people. It helps it appeal to more widows who can hear stories similar to these and feel encouraged and inspired and most importantly, like they are not alone. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Brave Widow podcast. I would love to help you take your next step, whether that's healing your heart, finding hope, or achieving your dreams for the future. Do you need a safe space to connect with other like-minded widows? Do you wish you had how-tos for getting through the next steps in your journey, organizing your life, or moving through grief? What about live calls where you get answers to your burning questions? The Brave Widow membership community is just what you need. Inside, you'll find courses to help guide you, a community of other widows to connect with, live coaching and Q&A calls, and small group coaching where you can work on what matters most to you. Learn how to heal your heart, find hope, reclaim joy, and dream again for the future. It is possible. Head on over to bravewidow.com to learn more.